Wow, what a service so far, hey? Man, yes. God is so, so faithful to us, and it is astounding. It is incredible to watch uh, the lives that Jesus is transforming uh, and these steps of faith among us. I I praise God uh, for each one. Each one that really has gone through uh, difficulties in their lives, but nonetheless found in the midst of those things um, a very real God who, who loves them very much. And as I listen to the stories again, I'm uh, just reminded of this personal relationship, this coming to know God and his goodness that has so changed their lives. And that's, that's where we're, we're landing this morning. Um, we're going to start a, an abbreviated Advent series because it's week two of Advent, and we're just, we just kind of finished off Daniel. Sometimes the sermon scheduling doesn't you know, go precisely as, as one would want, but when there's uh, six chapters you need to get through in Daniel, you, know, you just got to do that. So we're doing a little bit of an abbreviated Advent series uh, called Prince of Peace. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Uh, He came to earth. Long before that, a prophet named Isaiah described what this Jesus would be like when he said in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to zero in on that last title for Jesus, Prince of Peace. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? I mean, we talk a lot about uh, peace at Christmas, right? I mean, this is the the Advent week of peace. Um, You might buy Christmas cards that say peace across them or hang ornaments that say peace. What do we mean by that? Is that sort of like the Miss America pageant answer of world peace? Like, is, like is, that, is that what we mean by peace at Christmas? I mean, what are we saying? What do we mean? And what does it mean that Jesus is the prince of peace? Well, in the original language in Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom, which has a much more rich meaning than our English word peace. And shalom isn't simply kind of this void of conflict. That's, that's, that's just not enough. Uh, it, Shalom is wholeness, completeness. Shalom is full economic, spiritual, and physical flourishing. And so when we talk about Jesus as the Prince of Peace, we can say that really when we approach Jesus, we, we get, when we have relationship with Him, we go from enemy of God to peace with God, from a guilty conscience to a conscience of peace, from poverty, injustice, violence, war, disease, and death to peace. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom that ultimately would bring peace. And when it's consummated, when he comes again, oh, what peace, what shalom there will be. And so in this Advent series, in the next few weeks, we are going to look at the Prince of Peace and, and unpack it this way, that it means peace with God, peace within, and peace on earth. And so that's where we're going, and this morning we're going to look at peace with God. Two-thirds of Canadians believe that there's a God. I wonder of the two-thirds of Canadians, how many would say, okay, I believe there's a God and I have peace with God. And if we don't have peace with God, what, what would it look like to have peace with God? How do we get it? So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 15, because we 
are, are told an incredible parable by Jesus in Luke 15 that's really going to help us see how we can have peace with God. Now, in Luke chapter 15, there are three parables, and they're all about lost things being found. There's a lost sheep that's found, there's a lost coin that's found, and there's a lost son who is found. And every single time when that lost thing or person is found, there is rejoicing over it. So let's look at the third parable about this lost son, this prodigal son. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and he said, this is Jesus saying, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Oh, I lost my place. <laughs> I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Let's stop there for a few minutes. What a story. What a parable. This, this is known as the parable of the prodigal son, but it would be maybe perhaps more accurately called the, the parable of the two lost sons. We're going to find out more about the older brother in a little bit, but, but going with this trilogy of parables on lost things probably makes more sense to call it the parable of the lost sons. There's a second son we will read about momentarily. But this word prodigal is also helpful in this story. Prodigal means recklessly spending resources or recklessly extravagant or to spend until you have nothing left. That's certainly what we just read about in terms of this young son. But it's also true that the father is quite the prodigal himself, isn't it? If you really start to look at what the father has done, he has been recklessly extravagant towards this son of his. That's why Timothy Keller uh, named his book on this parable, not the prodigal son or the lost sons, but the prodigal God, who's recklessly extravagant in his love for his kids. 
So let's zero in here uh, on this youngest son, and then we'll look at the older son. Entitled it, Embrace, Peace with God is Available to Religious Outsiders Through Christ. And we'll get to why we see that here in the text. But just in terms of tradition, in terms of history, what was common here in this time was that when the father died, catch that, when the father died, that was the time when the inheritance would be dispersed among the sons. And so the eldest son was, would typically get two, th- um, sorry, a double portion of the father's property and livestock stock and possessions, and any younger sons would get a single portion. So in this case where there are two sons, the elder son would get two-thirds of the land and the livestock, and the younger son would get a third of the land and livestock. The reason was because that eldest son was really meant to continue to care for the whole family and so was to have the resources to do so. But what's so inappropriate about this younger son in this story is that he's asking his dad for his dad's stuff before his dad has died. Okay? It's, it's like saying to his dad, I don't want you, I want your stuff. And as Jesus is telling this story, the, the hearers of the story would be shocked at what they're hearing. Wildly inappropriate for a son to ask this of his father. This is an honor and shame culture, and the son has so dishonored his father's name. Give me what is coming to me I want out. It's like me saying to my dad, I want your life insurance policy, so can you like take, take up extreme sports and things like that? Like, it's just like, it's, just, it's, so, it's so rude. It's kind of got, got like a dateline feel to it, right? Like, put like a massive life insurance policy on and then see what happens. And so it's just so, so wrong. And yet this is what the son does. But more surprising to the listeners here of Jesus' parable would be not what the son has done, shocking as that was, but the father's response. Like what the father should have done appropriately was send his son away with a kick in the pants as he right, sends him off. But instead he sends him off with exactly what he's requested. The father goes and sells a third of his property and a third of his livestock. And again, in an honor and shame culture, you had great honor if you had great wealth and were someone of significance. And the only way you had great wealth was through land and livestock. And so for a father to sell off a third of all he has is to experience great dishonor. And so the hearers would recognize, what a disgrace. What a disgrace. And yet the father does it. The son goes off to a foreign land, it says, and he spends his entire inheritance wastefully. Actually, it's, it's the older son's telling, we'll get to in a little bit, that actually tells us that he actually spent the money on prostitutes. And after spending everything, a famine comes and he winds up feeding pigs and he doesn't even have um, the quality of life of these pigs. He longs for their food. He's literally hit rock bottom. And realizing that even his father's servants had it better than him, he decided to return to his father. And he, he, he prepares a speech. Look at verse 18. He comes to his senses and says, I will rise, arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. So he's got this prepared speech. That's what he's going to go and tell his dad. And then he arrives on the scene and he begins to say, 
Uh, where is it now? Verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's going to say, let me be one of your servants. But his, he, his father doesn't let him get to it. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Dress him not like a servant, but as a son of mine. He cuts him off. He will not let him even say, make me one of your servants. The father's reaction here is one of mercy. Look, if you come back home to God, it'll never be as a servant. It'll always be as a son. See, what his son wants to do, contrite as he is, He's recognized the error of his ways, and he wants to come back to his father. And his best thinking says, maybe I can work it off. Like, maybe I can be a servant in his household. But here's the thing about grace. You can't earn it. You can't come back and, take, and be a servant in the household of God. If you're a son, then you're a son. And so, God embraces, this is God embracing his son, this, this wayward child, this prodigal who's lived a reckless life and says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're not a grace earner, you're a grace recipient, welcome home. I love that this father, when we talk about honor and shame, this patriarch runs to his son and embraces him. So this is something that, again, in this culture, patriarchs didn't do. It wasn't an honorable thing that they would be off running. They had servants, they had wealth, they had people to do running for them. And so it's just not something that they would ever do. But when the father catches sight of his son, he bolts to him and embraces him. Listen, long before we longed to be home with God, the father was moved with compassion and love to bring us back home. And like the prodigal, when we were still a long way off, he ran to us. You might ask yourself, when did God run to me? Like, when did God cast off all dignity and run to me and embrace me? Well, the answer to that question is Christmas. In the incarnation, when Jesus came and when Jesus went to the cross, when we essentially said, you're dead to me, Jesus came at Christmas and said, I'll die for you. That you and I could experience peace with God came at great personal cost to God himself. I mean, this is the crux. Jesus bore the sting of death on the cross so you could experience the warm embrace of the Father, to make peace with God, Jesus came at Christmas so that you could be reconciled to the Father. Jesus bore the sting of the cross so you could experience the embrace of the Father. The story, though, is not yet over. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Now this older son, his older son was in the field, working most likely, right? And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So this wasn't a Mennonite party. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, that, that's, I'm pretty sure you don't talk to your dad like that. Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you have a Bible open, look to the very beginning of the chapter, Luke 15. Because this sets the context of of, of who the hearers are. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners, right, total outsiders, were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes, religious insiders, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you hear the two groups? Jesus is telling three parables in a row to two distinct groups, sinners and tax collectors. I mean, tax collectors were despised. And then there's talk of prostitutes in the story that Jesus is going to tell. So there's like the utterly rejected ones, and then there are the utterly acceptable ones in in culture. And both of them are converging. And as these sinners, these outsiders are approaching, the insiders are grumbling. I mean, what is is Jesus doing? Eating with sinners. And of course, in in the ancient Near East, and still today in the Middle East, really, is if you are to share a meal with somebody, it's acceptance. It's friendship. It's relationship. It's meaningful. There are two distinct groups here. One is tax collectors and sinners that represent the younger brother. They don't follow the moral laws of the Bible or the rules for ceremonial purity followed by the religious Jews. And like the younger brother, they left home by separating themselves from the traditional morality of their families and society. They're religious outsiders. While the Pharisees and scribes represent the older brother, They held to the traditional moral upbringing of their families and societies. They studied scripture and obeyed it. They worshiped and prayed regularly. These are clearly religious insiders. And yet as Jesus gathers both groups and sees them converging and sees the hostility of the insiders, he tells three stories. There was one lost sheep. 99 were hanging out, but there was one lost sheep and the shepherd went after the one and when he got it, he gathered everybody and celebrated. There was a woman with some coins But she lost one of the coins and she looked everywhere and when she found it, she celebrated that the lost one was found. And there was this dad who had two sons and one of them was lost, but then he was found and it was cause for celebration. Like, do you hear what Jesus is doing? There are insiders and outsiders. And what what are the stories that Jesus tells? Well, they make the outsiders feel very compelled by the gospel and they make the insiders wildly uncomfortable and disdainful, and even angry. See, this confused these stories of Jesus and the way he was acting. These confused and angered the moral and religious. This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
This parable clearly shows, we need to see both things happening here, that both the younger brother, representing religious outsiders, and the elder brother, representing religious insiders, needed a change of heart. And we just looked at the horrible thing this young son did to his dad. He needed a change of heart, and we just discovered that he had it. But this elder brother and his reaction at his lost brother being found is, is totally backwards, and he needs a change of heart. There's a story, uh, there's a parable as well in the Gospels called about the Good Samaritan. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's got this crowd, this mixed crowd, and he's telling a story. And at one point, he tells a story where um, the good neighbor in the story was a Samaritan, but Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. And then Jesus asked one, one, of, the, one of the religious uh, kind of elites, one of the Jews in the crowd, he says, well, who was the good neighbor? And, and, and this religious person couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan, so he says, um, the one who showed mercy. <laughs> he just can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan was the good guy in the story. Same thing here. Do you hear what happens when the younger brother returns? And, and, and the, what does the older brother say to his dad? This son of yours squandered everything on prostitutes. He can't even bring himself to say, my brother. Do you hear the hostility of the elder son? Do you hear the need for a change of heart? That's why this second section is entreat. Peace with God is available to religious insiders through Christ. The problem is most religious insiders don't know that they still need to discover peace with God. You actually need to have it. The younger brother came to the end of himself and realized his need. The older brother at this point doesn't recognize how needy he actually is. I referenced uh, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. In it, he says, neither son loved the father for himself. And that's the issue. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that You can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. So look, the younger son was alienated from the father through his wrongdoing, but the elder son was alienated from God through his right doing. See, it's more obvious with the younger son because he burnt a hole through his wallet partying and sleeping with prostitutes. It's it's easy to look in and say his bad behavior makes it obvious that he's rebelling against God, but it's more subtle with the, the older brother. His good behavior is what caused his rebellion against God. Verse 29, the older son says, I have never disobeyed your command, and therefore I deserve more than you've given me. You haven't even given me a young goat, and here you're killing the fattened calf for that wretch. The younger son is saying, I don't even deserve to be your servant. And to that, God says, you're my son. The older son is saying, he doesn't deserve this. I do. And to that, God says, come celebrate with us. Your brother was dead, but is alive. He was lost, but he's found. See, the posture of the heart of the older brother is being exposed here. And what winds up happening in church-saturated places like Chilliwack and Winkler and the state of Texas, 
right, is that church-going people nearly perfect the how of the Christian faith, but if we're not careful, we can totally miss the why. We know all the things we shouldn't do, and we know all the things we should do, so what do we put our efforts towards? Those things we should do, we do those. In the very least, we, we make an appearance like we're doing all the things that we should do. But the motivation is what matters. It's the heart that matters. And Jesus in this parable is exposing the heart of elder brother types. See, if we do those things because we think it earns us merit before God, we don't know the why. We're just racing around doing the how without any heart. Void of relationship. And I wonder, in the Christian life, in the involvement that many of us have in church, very involved, that we just kind of, it, we find ourselves, if, we're, if, if we don't wake up to it, just totally void of heart, totally void of meaningful relationship with the Father. Yeah, we're doing all the stuff, but if it's void of relationship with the Father, then it's utterly meaningless. And the posture we begin to take on is, God, you're not doing enough good for me. Don't you see how well I'm doing? I go to church so often that like, people know that's my chair. Like People don't sit in my seat because they know I'm always in that seat. Like, Don't you get it, God? I'm really good at this church stuff. And when I put my offering down, I don't put the envelope face down. I put it face up, hoping the person next to me sees it, because if they catch a glimpse of my generosity, they will know how faithful I am. And on and on and on we go. The why is all about heart change. And you can, you can be in, the, in bed with a prostitute or be sitting in a pew, and your heart can be far from God. The tricky part is, the elder brother thinks that he's okay. The elder brother thinks he's right. The elder brother thinks that what he has done makes him right with God. James 2 verse 10 exposes such thinking when James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. See, this older brother in verse 29 says, I haven't, I, I haven't disobeyed any of your commands. That's not possibly true. I have sons. <laughs> For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. See, the older brother's looking and says, look at the adultery of my brother. And yet Jesus comes along and says, even if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart with her. Adulterer, adulterer. Now, the one adulterer is sleeping with the prostitute. The other adulterer, it's, it, it's, an, it's a, an issue of the heart. And so the older brother says, well, I look a lot more put together than them, and we're convinced that we're okay. But if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. It doesn't matter how many good things or right things you do. You still have sin in your life and need a Savior. And if we recognize that in our heart of hearts, if we recognize that, then we know that we could never earn salvation. We could never deserve His grace. Jesus had to come and had to die to save rebellious sinners like us, and Jesus had to come and had to die to save religious sinners like us. In the parable, the younger son really becomes full of awe of the father because he's hoping he can get back in as a servant, 
And the father says, no, 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 you're a son. Meanwhile, with the older brother, there's no awe. There's no wonder. There's no amazement at the goodness of the father. And that's a big problem. J.C. Ryle wrote, nothing should give us more pleasure than hearing about a conversion. Somebody coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let us thank God and rejoice. Let us praise God that one more soul is saved. I mean, it's just when we're cheering as people are baptized, what a moment that is. We should echo the words, this brother was dead and is alive again. Here's the warning. The person who can be absorbed in politics or sports or making money or farming and not in the conversion of souls is no true Christian. He is himself dead and must be made alive again. He is himself lost and must be found. You can be inside the church and not be one iota of amazed at the saving work of Jesus going on around you. And that's a big problem. J.C. Ryle would say, actually, it's you, sinner, who's dead and needs to be made alive. Do you believe that you're a Christian? that you're saved and that God favors you because of your doctrine, your zeal, your worship, your your moralism? Religious self-righteousness then is hostile towards those who don't measure up. It's such a horizontal view. We say, I'm better than that person. I'm a better law keeper than them. But the problem is, is we're all lawbreakers and need grace. See, that's no gospel. You're a Christian because God in his grace decided to set his love upon you, not because you don't curse at work like everybody else, but because he's a God full of mercy to the religious insiders and the religious outsiders. Jesus' ministry consistently attracted the irreligious of his day, the religious outsiders. Look, I just have a word for us, for myself in the church today. By and large, Our churches and our practice as Christians in the world, as I look around, don't seem to be attracting the religious outsiders very much, do they? Jesus in his ministry had people flocking to him that were such outsiders. Why aren't they flocking to our churches like that? Are we preaching the same message? Have we lost the aroma of Christ? That's the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2. Do we smell like Christians? Or something else? Is it for the radical message of the gospel that we are known? Or as moralistic elitists who grumble about the waywardness of the culture? What are we known for? Is our church, are you and me, known as radical grace recipients and heralds? Or as moralistic elitists saying, that son of yours, what a mess. 
See, whether it's the irreligious rebellion of the younger son or the religious rebellion of the older son, sin put them both at odds with the father. And consequently, their sin, their hostility towards the father had put them outside the home and in need of reconciliation. The younger brother was at odds with his father through unrighteousness, and the elder brother was at odds with his father through self-righteousness. And this parable shows us that God comes out to meet us. Like we're talking about how do we get peace with God? Here it is. If you think my life is such a mess, I don't fit in here. Everybody's clean cut. Everybody looks put together. I want you to see the picture of God that Jesus paints. I mean, Jesus, who was at the right hand of the Father from his for eternity past, comes and says, I want to give you a picture of what God's like. Nobody knows what, what God the Father is like more than Jesus. And he says, let me tell you what he's like. If you are such a mess, if you would just turn, you may have a speech all sorted out, but if you would just turn to God, he's already running to embrace you. You can have peace with God no matter what you've done. Say, I need you, God. If you can be like the younger son who's like, I blew it, I need Jesus. You turn, he's already running to embrace you. But you also need to hear the other part of the story too, to this hostile older brother who's standing outside the great banquet feast. The father doesn't just leave him out there being like, you don't get it. It says that he comes and entreats this older son, literally means pleads with. Isn't that amazing? Like, if you have a hard heart here this morning, if you're a religious insider, but you don't have relationship with God, I just want you to hear this amazing news. You have a father, a loving heavenly father who pleads with you. Come into the feast and experience relationship with me. Celebrate lost ones being found, dead ones being made alive. We need to celebrate this, and I want you to come in and celebrate it with us. What a truth. What a beautiful truth. God runs to embrace us. God beckons and entreats us. In Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point. Whether it's through your unrighteousness or your self-righteousness, there's a way to God. Through Jesus Christ, And you are justified, which means a legal standing of the person who surrenders their life to Christ. It's legal standing. It's a legal term. You're justified. And the result, this objective peace with God. So turn to Jesus. Advent is a season of waiting. But this anticipation never began with us. It began a long time ago with our Heavenly Father, He longed for us and was moved in compassion and love to bring us home. And while we were still a far way off, he ran to us so that we could be at peace with God. Um, We're going to respond here with singing. 
And we're also going to respond, we always do, with prayer. We love to pray with each other. And so we're going to have a prayer team, members in different parts of the, the, the room this morning. They're, they're wearing lanyards to identify themselves. Our pastors love to pray with you as well. We'd love to pray with you about anything that convicts your heart this morning or about anything going on in your lives. We just love to pray together. We're going to respond with song as well. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming to save Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for coming at Christmas. Recognizing that as we said to God, you're dead to me. You said, I'll come die for you to make you right with him. Thank you that you don't offer some, I don't know, just some lackluster peace. You come to bring a robust peace, rounded full peace with God, no matter our history, no matter the mess of our lives, you come to bring peace that we could be reconciled to you. May we turn to you in faith. May we follow you, respond in faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.